Yeah, just so that you can get ready, we'll, we will be looking at uh, uh, Exodus chapter 17. That's going to be our main text. But before we get there, um, I was uh, raised in the uh, 90s. There we go. I was raised in the 90s. And uh, the, the 90s was a great time for music. I want everyone to be able to see that, uh, that great image that's very, very 1990s. There we go. Let's move it forward. Look at that. It's even got the, you know, you know, like all the pixelated, not very high quality that was uh, very much how, how things were back then. But you know, the 1990s was a great time for music. Um, music, the 1990s was when music came alive for me. Uh, there was the Oasis, uh, the Smashing Pumpkins, there was Nirvana, Radiohead, REM, the Cranberries, Blur, the Counting Crows, you had No Doubt, you had Pavement, Suede and Pulp, the Levelers, the Pixies, the Flaming Lips, the Cardigans, you had Portishead, you had Cake, you had Presidents of the United States of America, there was the grunge scene. Hands up if you heard, if you recognize any of those bands that I just mentioned. All right. Hands up if you have no idea of any of them that I met. Okay, there we go. This is our age demographic. But in the 90s, was, um, there was the grunge scene out of Seattle. There was the Britpop scene out of the UK. There was the trip-pop scene, the jungle scene, the dance scene. There was just tons of great, great music going on. And at least one of my daughters has told me that she wishes she was alive in the 90s. Why? Because the 90s were special. But you know what else the 90s was? 90s was my paper round going to school, watching TV, awkwardly hitting puberty and not being sure what to do with all these uh, emotions and hormones raging through my uh, awkward skinny little body. It was playing, playing football with friends. It was me playing on my Amiga 500 and wishing that I had a Sega Mega Drive or a Nintendo Game Boy. In other words, the 90s was nothing special. As I lived through them, the 90s were nothing special, but as I look back at them, the 90s are very special. And this very ability to look back through time and ascribe specialness to what was ordinary is known as nostalgia. Nostalgia is, in a sense, our memory rewriting history to make something spectacular out of something standard, something outstanding from what was ordinary. Nostalgia is chronological alchemy, creating memories of gold from moments of lead. And as humans, we cannot help but be nostalgic. The uh, Oxford dictionaries describe nostalgia as a sentimental longing or um, wistful affection for a period in the past And we hear nostalgia all the time, especially from folks my age or older. It's not like it used to be. I remember when. Did I ever tell you this story about? So I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them just one thing that you are nostalgic for. Turn to your neighbor and share one thing that you are nostalgic about or for. Off you go. You got one minute.
good. Even if you didn't turn to someone, I hope that you had something in your mind as you thought about things that you're nostalgic for. These next few weeks, as we continue going through year A of the Revised Common Lectionary, we're going to be jumping around our lectionary text. Usually I like to focus us in one particular part of the Bible, but we're actually going to be jumping around as we delve deeper into this idea of gratitude, or rather the enemies of gratitude, right? We know that that, uh, living with gratitude has many 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 benefits uh, there's a positive outlook improved mental health helps us fight our depression and so on in fact one of the reasons that we meet on a sunday morning is to practice gratitude to our god as it says here in ephesians 5 speaking to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs singing and make music with, with your heart to the lord that's what we've been doing and then giving thanks always for everything to god the father in the name of our lord jesus christ As we meet on Sunday morning, we're flexing our gratitude muscles. But of course, as I mentioned, gratitude has many enemies. If gratitude was easy, then we'd always be happy and thankful all the time. But I have a sneaking suspicion that's probably not true of every single one of us in this room. Because gratitude is something that has to be fought for. It has to be protected. It has to be guarded. And to guard our gratitude, we have to know what the enemies of gratitude are. So over these next five weeks, we're going to be looking at these enemies of gratitude. We'll be looking at worry, at entitlement, at greed, at disappointment, and at nostalgia. In uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that he's struggling for the church in Colossae. So he's struggling for them. And then he says this, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Being encouraged is a struggle and it's a struggle that's worth having. And gratitude is something that is worth fighting for, because a heart that is grateful is a heart that sees God. And in our lectionary text today, we see the opposite of gratitude. We see grumbling, and that grumbling is rooted in nostalgia. Exodus 17 verse 3 Our key text says this, But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, just one chapter earlier, Exodus 16, verse 3, this grumbling rooted in nostalgia is made even clearer. It says, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat and ate all of the bread that we wanted. Instead, you've brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. In these two passages, we can see how insidious and dangerous nostalgia can be. If only we had what we used to have instead of what we have now. Those were the good old days. And again, in Numbers 11 verse 4, we see this colourful and powerful craving for nostalgia. Numbers 11 verse 4, The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? 
We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. They're getting very specific about what meals they used to eat. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. Do you remember the free fish? Do you remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic? And you can see them as, as they start to smack their lips and salivate. Do you remember the pots of meat and the all-you-can-eat bread? That's what they remember. But nostalgia is a trickster. Nostalgia is a liar. Because let's take a look back to see what life was actually like back in the good old days. Exodus 1.13, they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Or what about the conveniently forgotten policy of enforced abortions and eugenics? Which is coming up. That was a great run in line. I'm going to edit that. So when they watch it back later, it's just going to go amazingly to the next slide. There we go. I'll say that again. What about the conveniently forgotten policy of enforced abortions and eugenics? Sorry, I shouldn't be smiling when I said that. I'm going to say it one more time without smiling. What about the conveniently forgotten policy of enforced abortions and eugenics? Exodus 1.16, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. That's what it was like in Egypt. Or what about the policy of mass infanticide? Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. And of course, the daughters were only allowed to live because they would mate with the Egyptians, eventually breeding the Israelites out of, out of existence. But all the Israelites can remember in the desert is the free fish. Friends, spiritual nostalgia cannot be trusted because nostalgia distorts the past. We need to be very careful what we are remembering because A, we could be misremembering and B, what we do remember can actively be warring against our gratitude in the present. And this leads us to our second point. First, our first point was that spiritual nostalgia distorts the past. Our second point is spiritual nostalgia deconsecrates the present. Now, the word deconsecrate uh, is only exists because the word consecrate existed first. It's the opposite. It's the D of the consecration. And that word consecrate uh, means to set aside something or to maybe dedicate something specifically for the purposes of God. This thing, which is consecrated, is set apart for holy purposes. So the temple was consecrated. Samuel was consecrated by his mum in the Bible. We consecrate our children when we dedicate them on a Sunday morning. In essence, what we're saying with this thing, whatever we're consecrating is, God, this thing is for you. And so deconsecration is a twisted inversion of the word consecration. Another way that I could explain it is that if something is consecrated, then you see the holy in it. You see God in it. 
in that place, in that moment, in that person, or in that thing. Which means if you deconsecrate it, then it means that you're taking God out of it. You are making it unholy. And my second point this morning is that spiritual nostalgia deconsecrates the present. Spiritual nostalgia takes God out of the present. It says, God, you're no longer working now or active now, at least not in the same way that you used to be. What do I mean by this? Well, we've heard the report of the children of Israel. Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That's Exodus 17 verse 3. This is their current view of the present, and it is a deconsecrated understanding of the present. God is not present, or at least he's not present in the way that they would like him to be present. And so the question is in Exodus 17 verse 3, is there... Is their assertion, is their understanding of the present, is it correct or is perhaps their perspective skewed or incorrect? Now to answer that, let's move forward a few hundred years to the book of Nehemiah. Now in this case, a few hundred years later, the Israelites have just come back from exile and the Levites are standing in front of the children of Israel, much like I'm standing in front of you now. And so, and remember that the descendant or the children of Israel in Nehemiah are the the descendants of the children of Israel in Exodus 17. And the Levites uh, are encouraging the children of Israel. And the way that they encourage the children of Israel in that moment of change and, and of unsettledness, that they've left what they've known and they've come back to the Yeah, the promised land, uh, but it's not like it used to be. The way that they encourage them is to refer back to that, to those 40 years in the desert, hundreds of years before. And as we listen to what the Levites say, ask yourself whether their conclusion of God's involvement in the desert time matches with their ancestors' perspective as they are in the middle of the desert time. So we know what the people in Exodus 17 think, what do their descendants conclude later on? Okay, I'm just going to do this. This is what they conclude. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way that they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. So you've got, on the one hand, why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Against you did not abandon them, The pillar of cloud never turned away. You sent your good spirit. You did not withhold your manna. You gave them water. Do you see the difference? In the moment, the people in Exodus 17 verse 3 are complaining. They see God as not present. They see God as having abandoned them in some way. They see God as not coming through for them in the way that they want. In other words, they've That moment has been deconsecrated for them. And yet, this very season that's causing the Israelites in Exodus 17 to doubt God's presence and care and love is the very season that later causes their descendants to lift up a hymn of praise to God. And here's why. 
Because spiritual nostalgia, which is an unrealistically positive view of the past, takes God out of or deconsecrates the moment in Exodus 17. The Israelites in Exodus 17 have a very rosy view of the past. They see Egypt not as a place of subjugation and slavery and hard toil and backbreaking work, where their very identity as a people was being systematically destroyed through abortion and genocide and infanticide. Instead, they view it through rose-tinted spectacles as a place where their needs were met, where the fish was free. Spiritual nostalgia can deconsecrate the present. So friends, as we're wandering, as I said at the beginning of the service, we are, we are pilgrims in this barren land. We're wandering through the wilderness of this life. We need to be very careful about spiritual nostalgia, about longing um, unthinkingly or unfilteredly for what was, because if we're looking at life through the, through the perception of what was, we may miss what God is doing now. Spiritual nostalgia deconsecrates the present, and when that happens, our gratitude plummets. And so I wonder, how are you missing seeing what God is doing now because you're so fixated on what God, on how things used to be? Now, as you're thinking about that, I want us to listen to Evelyn's story. My name is Evelyn Little, and hi guys. <laughs> I've been coming to Cornerstone since the late 90s. I've seen some changes at Cornerstone in my time, and one of the ones I really like is the prayer meeting that goes on every Tuesday night, and or most Tuesday nights, and uh, it's it's just great. It makes for a nice time of fellowship as well, too, and uh, that's very important to, to all of us. Not every change that I've seen is my favorite, and I'm sure there are other people, too, that are like that, and uh, I would say that we could do with a little bit less loud music sometimes <laughs> and but I think that's partly because I'm in the end part of my life and I've been brought up to the quieter music I think that's what it is and you guys out there I'm sure you're loving this music it would be nice to hear some old-fashioned hymns I, uh, I don't even know if you guys know Fanny Crosby but I love her hymns. I just love them. Things are not absolutely perfect at Cornerstone, but it's very important. And here's why I give, because this is my church. This is where I am very blessed of the Lord. It's where people support me, and it's uh, the pastor strives very hard to address our concerns. Thank you, Dan. For me, giving faithfully is really important because this church is a Christian church in a community where there are many unbelievers and we need to be reaching out to these people in North Gore. We need to be praying for them. 
and supporting the other uh, ministers in town too. I'm not saying financially, but in prayer. Um, so uh, I'm happy to be giving and hoping that people will come to the Lord. In closing, I just want to encourage every one of you people out there. You've been really faithful and wonderful and supportive to me personally. Just keep on doing your very best for the Lord. It won't save you to do your best, by the way. <laughs> but it is a good feeling. Thank you very, very much. Bye. Evelyn can look back and see how things were. She can look at how things are right now, both the good and the not her favourites. She loves the prayer meeting, however, she would like more hymns, some quieter music. This is her preference. And here's the thing, it would be easy for Evelyn to allow this dissatisfaction you know, to bubble up inside her and for her to say, I remember when we only used to sing hymns. Those were the days, and we've not sang any Fanny Crosby for a while now, so I'm going to vote with my wallet and not tithe and not give. Or Evelyn could say, well, you know what? I'm done with Cornerstone. I'm going elsewhere where my longings for what was will be met. You know, the devil loves seeing our gratitude quotient slip and slide down, because then he has us. He has us through maybe bitterness or anger or through this kind of simmering discontentedness. And unexamined spiritual nostalgia often, not necessarily always, but, but can often lead to grumbling. And grumbling is a great way for the devil to get a foothold, right? Listen to uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. He says this, Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, um, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. So you see that you've got food abuse, alcohol abuse, partying, sexual immorality, you've got testing Christ. These are all major sins. These are all major no-nos. And yet right up there with them, we've got grumbling. Don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. And spiritual nostalgia is a prime way for grumbling to enter our lives. It's not like it used to be. I wish we had more of X. And it would have been so easy for Evelyn to allow nostalgia to infiltrate every part of her life. And yet I know that she's not letting it happen. How do I know this? Because she comes to prayer every week and her gratitude for God's goodness just exudes through her. And when she sat out there in the showroom leading this group in prayer, I know that Evelyn is winning the battle for gratitude. And I know that Evelyn is one of our most faithful givers. She's on a fixed income like many of us are. Food prices are up. Living expenses are up. Fuel prices are up. We all know what that's like. 
And yet she gives week in and week out. Evelyn is winning the battle for gratitude. So we're in this this fight for gratitude. And one of the enemies we're fighting against is spiritual nostalgia, this fervent longing for the past. But as we've discovered, spiritual nostalgia distorts the past through selective membering. And it deconsecrates the present by believing that God is no longer working, at least not like he used to. And finally, spiritual nostalgia destroys the future. How does it do this? Well, it erodes the foundation upon which the future rests. The future rests on the past and the present. If the past is distorted and if the present is deconsecrated, then what is the future going to look like? In the Exodus account, God had to wait until this entire generation of grumbling Israelites had died out before allowing their children into the land of promise. He had to wait until they had all perished. Presumably one of the reasons uh, being that he didn't want that contagious obsession with the past and the inability to see God moving now to become part of that culture of the promised land. He didn't want a, a, a culture of nostalgic grumblers. Listen to these uh, sobering words from C.S. Lewis. Hell begins with a grumbling mood and you and, and yourself still distinct from it. Perhaps, perhaps you're, you are criticizing it and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood embrace it. Ye can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And actually, C.S. Lewis says that's what hell is, are these little things that we allow to grow and grow inside of us, taken on to its logical conclusion. That is what hell is. The power of the grumble, and so often this grumble is rooted in spiritual nostalgia. We're in a battle It's a battle for gratitude, and the first enemy of gratitude that we're facing is spiritual nostalgia, a nostalgia that can destroy the that that, that can distort the past, deconsecrate the present, and destroy the future. A nostalgia that can result in a quiet grumbling that ends up becoming a roar of discontent in your life and my life. So what can we do about it? How can we Um, If we are grumblers, how can we change course? If we are spiritual nostalgia junkies, how can we come off this very addictive drug? Well, we can practice gratitude. We can flex our gratitude muscles. We can count our blessings. We can ask God for the spiritual gift of gratitude. We should be grateful for what God has done in the past, but not at the expense of what God is doing now. And another way to fight for gratitude is to be involved in what God is doing around the world, around the community, and here at Cornerstone. We can give to what God is doing here. Last week, this past week, we had 10 kids at Cornerstone Kids. We had over 30 teens at Momentum Youth, many from the community. We have various grow groups starting up. We have coffee and chaos and calm in the chaos and other non-chaos related groups. We have missionaries that we are supporting in Canada and around the world. And as we hear their stories, we are activating our gratitude. But all these stories have a a financial figure attached to them. 
Every story costs money. It costs money to buy a pool table for the youth um, or to buy new curriculum for kids' church. It costs money to pay our staff. It costs money to send teens to camp. It costs money to help people in our community put food on the table. And just like Evelyn, we can grow our gratitude by being involved, by praying and by giving. Evelyn consistently places herself in a place of being encouraged because she's invested. And as we feed our addiction to gratitude, in doing so, we are starving our addiction to grumbling. You cannot be grateful and grumbling at the same time. You cannot be amazed at what God is doing while obsessing purely over what used to be. Spiritual nostalgia robs our past, present, and future, but gratitude fills our past, our present, and our future with the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We've seen through Evelyn's example that it's possible to acknowledge that not everything is to our liking whilst also seeing that God is moving, that God is changing lives, that God is bringing people to himself. And so I think it's perfectly appropriate to close this message with some words that a wise woman once said. Quote, things are not absolutely perfect at Cornerstone, but it's very important and here's why I give, because this is my church. This is where I am very blessed of the Lord. It's where people support me. For me, giving faithfully is really important because this church is a Christian church in a community where there are many unbelievers and we need to be reaching out to these people in North Gore. So I'm happy to be giving and hoping that people will come to the Lord. And the nice thing is that in, 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 in this uh, war against nostalgia, we never have to be nostalgic about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Hebrews 13 verse 8. Mm-hmm.